Yeah, g'day Simon, good to be here. It is, I mean, to segue already, it is quite remarkable how the debate shifted. There used to be one side of the discussion that were fiscal conservatives. And now like you, I'm feeling kind of lonely on that side of the, that side of the argument these days. Um, the takeaway, most of the, uh, the decrease in the quality of the, the budget, the deterioration in the budget balance is being caused by spending. Uh, there's a few tax issues, but I find them, they've been disappointing uh, in their, their meekness. Uh, you probably know this, there's only really two tax policies to talk of in this budget. Uh, and one is to extend the low and uh, middle income tax offset, LAMITO. And the other is to uh, extend the instant asset write-off. They're both kind of wonkish uh, and they allow the government to say they've got tax cuts in there. There's a couple of problems with this. Uh, one is they're both only extended for one year. Exactly. I mean, the, the turnaround uh, in the underlying budget, if the government had done nothing, we would have seen the budget this year and in the Ford estimates improved by about 100 billion, uh, which would have been appropriate. Uh, instead, we're seeing the budget get worse by 20 billion. So they've managed to take all of that good luck and spend it all. And then as they spend it, permanent increases to the size of government uh, and the few token tax cuts they give us, firstly, they're low quality tax cuts. Uh, and secondly, they're, they're temporary. So we don't even get to keep them. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a government priming for a, it's a budget priming for a bigger government. It's locking in bigger government for the future as well. There isn't a problem with having a deficit at this point of the electoral cycle. The issue isn't whether people seem to get caught up on whether the word is deficit or surplus. That's not a, a magic line that you cross over there. Uh, a, a moderate deficit and a slight increase in debt wouldn't be the issue here. Uh, they kind of make sense during COVID for reasons of automatic stabilizers. Automatic stabilizers, meaning when people lose jobs, they pay less tax. When people take more welfare, that costs the government more. So you expect that to happen. And the, uh, the JobKeeper program, which could be seen as a kind of government compensation for the fact that they shut down a bunch of businesses. So some of those things make sense. Uh, what really doesn't make sense is the uh, addition of $120 billion worth of extra spending and, and some slight tax cuts 
in this budget. The economy is already improving, right? So we, we, we need to keep a focus on being able to tolerate some deficits when you need them and then start getting them back on track. And we've tolerated the deficits and now we need the government to get us back on track uh, now. Not, not pretending they will do it maybe in 10 years. I believe they don't predict a surplus for another 10 years. And that is ridiculously too far in the future. Well, they should care. Just to comment quickly on the, the quick history you were running through there, there's two things to, to keep an eye on. One is the degree to which a government is increasing the size of the government. And the other one is their fiscal position. It's possible to increase the government significantly to run a surplus. You do that by just driving taxes up far too high. So there's two things to note here. One is their, their scorecard on size of government, which they've scored badly here. And the other one is their scorecard on fiscal discipline, which they've also scored badly. So you're right to note, for instance, that Howard and Costello scored well on fiscal discipline. I would note that the way they balanced the budget was massive increases in tax revenue. This is the, um, okay. Well, even then it's hard to spot many, many downward trends. Now, the, a couple of things to note here, this chart I'm showing you now is the real per capita government spending. So it's adjusted for inflation and it's adjusted for the population. So those are the appropriate adjustments to do so that we really see the, the real change in the size of government. And notice that trend is up under all sorts of, so you see a big jump here under uh, Whitlam, uh, fairly good under uh, Hawke and Keating, but it's just jumped under every single government, right? There has been no government uh, in, in our lifetimes that's decreased the size of government. Now, what often happens, the government will report these, this data as percentage of GDP, which means it often hides this fact. Uh, and so this is why probably many people in the public aren't aware of this sort of unstoppable upward trend in the size of government, because the government reports it in a different way that kind of doesn't let people see this clearly, which is why I think it's important for us to show it. Yeah, and it's uh, on both trends, on both of those report cards that I was suggesting, uh, we should be judging them on terms of fiscal discipline, in which case it's obviously a massive fail, although they'll say they have a good reason for it. 
but also judging them on size of government. And on that one, they don't really have much of an excuse. If they wanted to blow the budget, why didn't they do it with tax cuts? I mean, they blew the budget with massive increases in spending that are locked into the future and gave us a few token small tax cuts that don't even last. So that's the, the second one there is where I, I find it particularly galling and frustrating is that they, they seem to have locked in a permanently bigger government and they seem happy about it. Yeah, well, the idea that our modern religion is the government order. I mean, they, the government has positioned itself now as both father and mother, father as our protector and mother is giving us lots of free things. Uh, and it's... Well, to be fair, I never really called myself a mother, but uh, <laughs> putting, putting those uh, silly debates aside, um, yes, the. the there's a political appeal in setting yourself up as the, the, the organization that's going to protect people. I mean, I would, uh, I believe that you get uh, value in life from taking on responsibility and succeeding, but the easier way through life is to say someone else will take responsibility. Someone else will do it for me. And the government uh, has a, a political incentive to tell you that they will step in and, and play that role. It's a dangerous one. And it's one that it seems to increase subtly over time to the point where in any one year, you don't notice the takeover. But if you add all those years together, uh, the government now plays a massive role in all of our lives uh, in unstoppable, in unstoppable growth, it seems. Yeah, so going into the politics of the budget is a little bit beyond probably what I'm, <laughs> it's, it's not my home base, uh, talking about the politics of the budget, but it's certainly a lot of politics in the budget. One issue here is, is the, is the current government setting up to blow such a big hole in the budget that they prevent the opposition in a future election being able to promise even more spending? So that's been a, a commonly... Yeah, so I mean, that's an understandable political approach. It's not something that from a, a macroeconomic or fiscal perspective, you'd want to encourage. Uh, another thing on the politics of, of the budget, historically, Australia has had what I would consider quite a healthy political preference for surpluses. It's been a vote winning issue through most of the last, say, 20 or 30 years to say that you will balance the budget, bring it into surplus, uh, pay down debt. And because that's been a winning political issue, it's kind of 
the politics has forced politicians to behave better than they might have. One of the things that really worries me about this budget is it seems like it's now an admission. Both sides of politics are gleefully saying that we are over the age of surpluses, that they don't see a political gain in being fiscally responsible anymore. And once that's not a political gain, once that's not in play, I can't see what's going to give them their discipline back. I mean, the, the government will say, don't worry, just give us a few years. We promise we'll be disciplined in the future. I mean, everyone's kind of heard that line before. Uh, if there's no political incentive for them to be disciplined, I mean, if they get one bad budget, this is a bad budget in my opinion, but if there's one bad budget and then they get disciplined again next year, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's not the end of the world, we'll recover. Uh, but unfortunately with this current trend, uh, we seem to have got no political pushback. It's you and me and uh, maybe a few people in the comments now, but we, we're getting increasingly lonely in insisting that fiscal discipline matters. And if that falls out of the political discussion, I'm worried about the trend we're on. What? Yes, I mean, the, Australia went into this in a relatively good fiscal position. We've been saying that for a while. Uh, the reason I think we went into it with a relatively good fiscal position is that we had this leftover ideas that there's political benefit from balancing the budget. And to look at where you go without that, you just, as you say, look at America, but also around Europe. I mean, there's plenty of countries have a head start on us uh, in their, the race to, to blow up their fiscal position. Uh, but if we start chasing them, I can't see how that ends well. Uh, and as you mentioned before, I mean, the, the risks involved in this, the, I think part of the problem is the risks involved with ever escalating debt. And then, as you say, the potential to monetize that debt, the risks involved, uh, it's a low risk of a massive disaster. And every year that disaster doesn't happen, it seems to me that it's lulling people into a false sense of security. They go, oh, okay, well, 50% debt, there's 50% of GDP doesn't matter. You can push it to 70, you can push it to 90. And as every time you get away with it, it seems the attitude is more and more, well, we can just push it further. But of course, you can't push it forever. The end of that point is a crisis, and it's very hard to see the crisis coming. That's why you want to stay well away from it. Uh, and I, I fear that people have lost a, a healthy amount of respect or fear of the idea of a debt or an inflationary crisis. And that lack of fear is leading them into sleepwalking into increasingly irresponsible fiscal policies.
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just to reiterate that metro issue you make there, there was one of the complaints about this budget is that they uh, are running too big a deficit when they don't need to. But the other issue, which I'd like to bring home, it's a separate issue, just as important, uh, is that if you're going to run a deficit, what's the reason? And as you say, their reason is that they're just uh, blowing more money than God on new spending projects that last forever. Uh, if they... Well, unfortunately, and this is my point, the deficit is, is vote buying, but you could get a deficit two different ways. So we have to judge this budget twice. One is the deficit's too big, true. Uh, secondly, what policies did they put in place to get that deficit? If it was permanent tax cuts, that would actually end up at least being a productivity measure that would help the economy long run. So my big lament here is the, the government spent the deficits too big, but my bigger lament is the way they've done it. And the way they've done it through mostly spending increases. And as you say, even the tax cuts they've given, uh, there's three parts to this story. The first part is they're temporary. It's one year. It's, it's a total missed opportunity to lock in some more permanent tax cuts. Uh, yes, I, I think it's going to become a political football and then the government hasn't shown any backbone at uh, engaging in tough economic arguments. So once uh, Labour pushes them, I imagine they will fall over quite quickly. But anyway, so onto the, the other second tax point that you mentioned earlier, they're only around for one year. The second problem, the low and medium uh, income tax offset is almost the perfectly bad tax cut. It, it's the worst designed uh, form of tax reform. It's not even tax reform. It doesn't deserve that title that I've ever actually seen. It, it is, you run the numbers with the Lomito uh, and it actually doesn't create any efficiency improvement in the economy potentially creates an efficiency cost because the way it works, it doesn't just give people some tax money back. People think, all right, tax cuts, lower tax rates, more money in my pocket. It has lower tax rates for some people, but then it claws it back by increasing tax rates on other people. And unfortunately, the way they've designed it is they've got slightly lower tax rates for people who don't change their behavior very much. So it doesn't help the economy much. And they've got higher tax rates, 3% higher tax rates for people earning between 90 and 130 odd, 3% higher marginal tax rates on people who do change their behavior. So we've got a, a tax reform that I guess they could call it a tax cut. That's actually not helping the economy, potentially even hurting the economy, which is mind boggling. I mean, I'm a big advocate for tax cuts. I never thought it would be possible to come up with a tax cut this bad. So it's, it's quite amazing there. I will though, I said three points. One is they're temporary, that's a pain. Two is Lomito is epically stupid. Uh, the third point, the other tax cut they've got uh, in this budget is the extension of the asset write-off. So this is the one piece of credit I'll give this budget. That is good tax policy. I wish it was permanent. Such a lost opportunity to make that a permanent measure. Uh, but that, uh, that tax reform is a productivity-enhancing tax reform. It's basically the only thing in this budget that could be seen as microeconomic reform to help actually boost long-run growth and wages. So well done to them on that one, you know, one cheer for that one policy.
Yeah, well, I, I suspect the productivity issues related to migration is going to end up being a long burn, a slow burn. Uh, one issue on, on that comment, uh, my reading of the numbers, and I'm happy to be corrected, is that we haven't seen particularly strong wages growth for the last couple of years. I believe we've had negative real wages growth. Uh, I'm not blaming that on, I'm not saying that's due to the lack of migration. I just, I don't know if that's a, a, a correct claim. And I think we've got estimates of 1.5% uh, wages growth for this um, financial several things to unpack there. You're referring to the, of course, the Phillips curve, the relationship between unemployment and inflation. I think it's fair to say the Phillips curve is, is now correctly understood as a short-term phenomenon. Uh, so that's, uh, I think it is understandable why we'd have low inflation and, and low unemployment at the same time. I don't think that's uh, inexplicable. The issue though, this, this raises the, the fun segue here is the issue of wage growth. The government is saying they need to have uh, this uh, massive deficit to try and uh, boost economic growth and to drive up wages. That's part of their, their claim. Well, I don't begrudge them the goal. I mean, I, th I think we should have a goal for a lower unemployment, go below five, go below four. Uh, but the issue is, and this frustrates the hell out of me, the, the issue of unemployment is a microeconomic issue. The structure of the economy determines the sustainable or the, the long run level of unemployment. No amount of fiscal policy can have a long run influence. And that's part of the frustration of this debate. Fiscal policy is inherently a short term policy. That doesn't mean it's not useful sometimes. Sometimes you should use it, great. But it's not a long run policy. You cannot create sustainable economic growth through fiscal policy. That's absurd. I mean, sustainable economic growth only comes from productivity enhancements. And you can't macroeconomics your way into productivity enhancements, which is why the microeconomic reform that actually makes businesses more productive, people more innovative, that's the, that's the key to future economic growth. And that's what will then drive up wages growth and drive down unemployment. So that microeconomic reform is nearly entirely missing from this budget. This budget is, a, is nearly entirely a macroeconomic uh, document with the one exception being that uh, the instant asset write-off for companies, that's a good piece of microeconomic reform, unfortunately only one year. But everything else about this budget is just saying, trust us, we're just pump priming the economy. And there is a difference between stimulus and economic growth. You can't get long-term economic growth out of short, out of fiscal stimulus. Um, so that this is a, a constant frustration of mine with the discussion of the budget. Uh, and you often get, I think it's because macroeconomics is easier for journalists to understand. So they believe all of economics is macroeconomics uh, and they, they miss the discussion about how to drive productivity. Uh, which is uh, very lamentable because we're not going to get uh, wage growth really happening again until we start having a discussion about productivity. And that's very much missing at the moment.
Yeah, well, you're, you're quite right about the most of these jobs packages. Uh, for the large part, these jobs packages have either uh, not been shown to work or been shown not to work. Uh, either way, I, I suspect they're passed because they're a way for a government to say, look, we're trying. And they, they can point to a project that's quite easy for people to see with a big dollar sign on it. Uh, and so it's got political cachet, I, I guess. But in terms of actual productivity reform, I already mentioned now twice, I mentioned it a third time, if they'd made that instant asset write-off, if they'd made that permanent policy, that would have been good microeconomic reform that would have enhanced productivity long run. That would have improved the way our company tax system works. So that would have been great. Flattening, uh, flattening the, the mess of marginal income taxes. Uh, I said before, I, I commented, lamented the Lamito as being a, a ridiculous policy. I will, if I can suffer and indulge, accept your indulgence once more, just share with you this is what Australia's marginal tax rate system actually looks like. Uh, this is not what they normally show you. They normally just show you 0, 19%, 32.5%, 37.45%. That, that's what you're normally told, which sounds sensible. But that's not actually our income tax system. Our income tax system is this dog's leg, this, this monstrosity. So you've got here the, the impact of a Medicare levy being introduced at 10%. You've got the low income tax offset. You've got the low and medium tax offset low and medium income tax offset. And it creates this dog's breath, dog's, dog's leg, including several regressive points. You'll notice tax rates come down here, here, and here, which is not the way you'd want to design an income tax system. So in terms of productivity enhancing reforms, something that made this look more sensible would have been a nice step forward. Now, in the government's credit, the reforms they've got planned in 2024, if they ever happen, do help to improve this. Right? So they did take a step forward. They just legislated for it to be so far in the future that it may never happen. But that's the sort of thing we'd want, that uh, instant asset write-off for the company tax and the flattening uh, and improvement of the income tax system. And labor market reform, uh, that's a, a tough one. That's a tough one in the Australian political climate, but that's something that uh, needs to be considered. Uh, and just the, the issue of regulation strangling small businesses. many variables and you're trying to put me on the hook here. Um, I suspect the parameters will improve that number and then however it's improved, like the economy will improve that number and however much it's improved, the government will then step in and waste. So I'm just going to stick with the about that. I would say deficits of let's say roughly two to three percent of GDP for the foreseeable future. So that's that's roughly my prediction there. By the way, I, I know you're trying to wrap up and I should let you if I was polite, but can I just make one other comment about the, what's happening with this budget that I think is worth commenting on every year a budget comes out. As you would know, and many of your listeners would too, uh, we have a progressive income tax system that uh, creates bracket creep. Bracket creep is a, a natural every year secret tax increase that the government gets away from because they don't have to legislate it. You just fall into a higher tax bracket and you end up paying uh, more tax. So estimates from tax bracket creep from this budget over the next three years is somewhere about $50 billion. So the government is getting the benefit of a $50 billion tax cut 
giving us back like 10 or 20 billion of, of temporary tax, sorry, a 50 billion tax increase they're having, giving us back 10 or 20 billion worth of small tax cuts that are temporary and asking us to be happy about it. I mean, people should be outraged by the size of that bracket creep happening every year. 